Hey there, thank you for listening to a big time talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Apple, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you download your podcast. We're there, iHeartMedia. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tell a friend if you like what you hear and subscribe. Thank you, speakermatch.com for sponsoring the program. Speaker Match is the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner or you're a speaker, a platform speaker, people are now coming back together again, and you can find one another at speakermatch.com. If you hear Christmas happening in the background, that's because we are broadcasting from the Southern Christmas Show in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our friends at Headline Books invited us in to broadcast and talk with their authors who are here. One of them is Carl Stewart. Carl is from my home state of West Virginia. He's a Wisconsin guy now, uh, has written uh, a trilogy of books about seabird. And we'll find out what seabird is. It certainly is not a bird. Uh, and these are historical novels. Carl Stewart also a decorated, retired Green Beret. So first of all, thank you for your service. Secondly, thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Burke, for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. What town in West Virginia? I grew up near Huntington, West Virginia, way over on the west side by Kentucky, just a little south of Huntington, not to Logan, but up and down in that area. Yeah, I know Huntington well. I'm a Marshall University uh, student, so I know my thundering herd. The thundering herd, yep, they live there. I just about went to school there, but a girl talked me out of it. Girls will, will cause things to go askew on occasion. Yes, and she, um, that's why I'm living in Wisconsin. Oh, so it all worked out then? It worked out wonderfully for 50 years. Congratulations. I want to talk to you about uh, your service in the military, but first, these books. The new one is uh, Kiyomichi. You said this is the third book in your Legend of Seabird series. These are historical novels, which as I understand it, historical novels uh, marry real historical events with fiction, so you gotta have to sort of color in the lines on the things we don't know about. That's exactly right. You have to write the fiction realistic enough so that people who read it think it's real. And you have to write the history, interestingly enough, so that people think, wow, this can't be real. So in other words, the whole idea of historical fiction is to confuse the reader. <laughs> How much research goes into doing a historical fiction novel? Can you make the whole thing up except for a few facts? Oh, no. No, if you do that, you're going to uh, discourage readers. I've, my tendency is to sit and hammer keys. I like to write. So what I have to do, if I'm going to stay true to my craft, I restrict myself. I will research about six months of a year. Okay. And that means calling people, emailing people, texting people, going to dig in libraries, go to museums, um, do whatever I have to do to collect information, conduct interviews. Then, after I have a pile of papers, half of which I will never use, right. then I start writing. And that takes me usually about a half a year to get it right, to go through the drafts, to get it the way I want it, to shape it and polish it. Is the research... Uh, to me, that would be the fun part of the job. Is that the fun part for you, or is that the drudgery part? Oh, it used to be drudgery. I used to dread doing research. From the time I was in high school or college, that was a grind. Not now. 
now research really is the fun part. It is because you can, I want to know something about the Choctaw Nation. I can immediately identify somebody in authority in that area, contact them, and then we have a conversation. Now, you never used to be able to do things like that. Right. So the Internet has made research a whole lot less cumbersome. Oh, I don't even imagine doing what I do today without the Internet. Right. That would be really ridiculous. I, in one book I wrote, though, I did have to actually go do physical research where what you want is in paper. You have to go get it. So I had to go to the Navy archives, the Navy Museum in Washington, D.C., to dig through papers to find ship logs wow. of some ships I was interested in for a World War II novel. Carl Stewart is our guest today. He's an author of historical fiction with headline books. His new book, Kiyomichi, is available now uh, online at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever great books are sold. And you can also, by the way, uh, pick up an autographed copy at headlinebooks.com. Uh, I mentioned the, the, the overarching theme here is the legend of seabird, yeah. uh, which is not a seabird, is not a bird, and has nothing to do with the sea, correct? Exactly right. Seabird was a real man. He spelled his name as one word. Seabird. S capital S E E B I R D. One word. But when I decided to fictionalize it, you have to make some accountable be accountable for fiction. So I chose to separate it into two words. C S E E B I R D because when you asked him what his initials were, he'd always say S.B. <laughs> okay. So, yes, Seabird was a Choctaw native from Oklahoma who developed his craft of horsemanship, the real horse whisperer, back in the 1880s. He also just happened to be my great-grandfather. And that's the connection. That's, that's the, the coolness. That's where this starts. Your great-great-grandfather. Just great-grandfather. So, one. So, so, did you know your grandfather? Oh, yeah. His son-in-law was my grandfather. He was my granddad. That's what uh, the only name I knew him is was Granddad. I did not know what his name was when I was a kid. We did not know until after he, I didn't know, the family did, until after he passed away that his name was Seabird. That's when the family told me, and I got to admit, I was furious that no one had ever told me that. Carl, the the companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe have become huge in the last several years as people peel back the onion of their family tree. Yes. And it sounds like this is a lot of what you did. Did you go that far? Did you get into that sort of genealogy to, to trace it all back and learn more? I've gone back so far and learned so much. I'm collecting more notes about the Scottish immigrants who came the very man who came and settled in North Carolina and the family into Virginia back in the 1700s. I've gone six grandfathers back and I've got them. How much can you actually learn? Like, what do you really know about your great-grandfather? Oh, Granny outlived him, his wife, the niece of Devil Ants Hatfield. What? Yes, my granny was the niece, one of the nieces of Devil Ants Hatfield. From the Hatfields and McCoy uh, the feud. the Hatfield-McCoy feud. And she outlived him by 10 years. Okay. He died before I was 10 years old, but he was the man. He was the, the man. I didn't want to 
imitate. I wanted to be that man. If I could have shaped myself into another person, it would have been granddad. He was the safe place. He was the safe one to go to because back where I grew up, things were kind of rough, often got very rough. So you had a rough childhood, but your great-grandfather was? The safe place. And when I could stand in his shop and smell the leather and smell the oil and smell him working, we didn't have to talk. I'd just watch the sparks fly. And if he so much as said to me, boy, hand me them grips. I felt like God talked to Moses on the Mount Sinai or something, you know. I felt that good about being around Granddad. And when I was four, he made two pair of handmade chaps for me, one to wear and one to grow into when I grew up and became a cowboy. Oh, that's great. <laughs> did, did you know that he was uh, Choctaw? I knew nothing about him except he was a cowboy. who We had a, a picture of him on a bronc waving his hat. One picture had another picture of him on a horse. He died after doing a rodeo. He had gotten gored by a steer. Of course, he was 74. Wow. And that gradually took him out. But I didn't know. To answer your question, I just thought he was the greatest cowboy who ever lived. I remember him doing rope tricks when he was in his 80s and just being fascinated with what he could do with a rope. So then, let's fast forward. You go on. You have an incredible life. You become uh, a Green Beret. You have a full career as an educator. But is there still a part of that little boy, Carl Stewart, that wants to honor his great-grandfather with every, his books? Th- Burke, every single book I write is shaped around him. Either he is the protagonist, he is a grandfather of uh, a sailor in World War II, he is a great-grandfather of a boy in trouble, or he's a memory of a man who gives me guidance sometimes when I need it, even today. He is, he's the person I pay tribute to in all of my books. Like the North Star. Like, he is my load star. Yeah, he was. And he still is. Tell me about the new book, Kiyomichi. Kiyomichi is set in 1903. This was a key time. There was a new president, Teddy Roosevelt. There were cars on the streets of some cities. Electric lights were coming. Edison. This was 1903. This is not the Old West. This is the end of the Old West. In 1903, Seabird was rodeoing out west. His wife let him go rodeoing every summer so he could bring home the money they'd live on. He was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Teddy Roosevelt was there too. Teddy Roosevelt was the grand judge of the frontier days in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He had a ranch in Elkhorn, North Dakota that's now part of the Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Okay. He, this trip for Roosevelt was one of the key ones in American history. He ended up, after leaving Cheyenne and leaving Elkhorn and going west, he met up with a man named John Muir. Uh, the arch initial grandfather of the conservation movement. And John Muir said, Teddy, come with me. I want to show you something. Took him up in the wilderness, and the two men, for days, no Secret Service men, no doctor in case something went wrong, just these two men lived out there for a, a number of days. I think it was four nights, five days or something like that, before they came wandering back in. 
Shortly after that, Teddy Roosevelt sprang the idea of the national park system. Yosemite, Yellowstone up in the uh, near Wyoming territory, but farther east at that time. Those became the initial American national park. And so I started thinking as a writer, what if on that trip, Teddy had met Seabird a Native American whom Teddy respected immensely, Native right. Americans at that time, and they had had some kind of contact, interaction. What would that have been like? This blustery, toothy president, some people consider him a bully, and this quiet, taciturn Native American who's trying to blend in. And so that's what I do. That's Kiyomichi. Those, There's more to it than Teddy Roosevelt. But he's right in the middle of the book. The book is Kiyomichi. The author is Carl Stewart. It's from Headline Books and available now online everywhere. The third book in the Legend of Seabird series. Do you need to read the first two to understand what's happening here? Good question. Absolutely not. Because each book is a standalone. They're in a series, yes. They go from his youth to his maturity. But... Each one's separate, a separate adventure, a separate story. The first book in the series uh, was called The Legend of Seabird, The Last Long Drive. Yes, he worked the Chisholm Trail as a young man out there, Texas, Oklahoma, until they closed the trail in 1885 because the train came to Waco. Makes no sense to drive your cows across three states when you can put on a cattle car and ship it right to Chicago. Second book, Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone deals with his drifting into West Virginia, falling in love with a hillbilly girl. Her name was Sally, and she was a niece of Devil Ants Hatfield, and so he married right into that mess. Now, the book is fiction, of course, but those were real people, real times. It's an amazing idea for a trilogy, and I love the thought of you honoring your great-grandfather in that way. I wonder what um, what other people in your family might think about the book series. My father, before he passed away, gave me a lot of information about his grandpa, who was Seabird. And when I finished that book and gave it to him to read, to check specifically if I was correct about Seabird, he called me up and he was excited. He said, you got him. You got him. If he walked in the room and people had read that book, they know it was him. And that was the time I knew I got Seabird. I remembered him right, and my father confirmed it. There are a lot of people who say, Carl, oh, you know, I've got a book in me. Or maybe they've been told, you should write a book about that. Uh, And they have their own unique family story. What advice would you give to those people who, who think, Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should try to write a book because it's not easy. I run into that periodically at book shows or in book clubs or wherever I'm at. That happens. People walk up and say, oh, I've got stories about my mother or my grandmother and she passed away. What am I going to I want to write. What can I do? I just say start writing. And it doesn't have to be a novel. If you're intimidated by the size of any novel, write an essay. Write an anecdote. Write Just a, write. Write a poem. Just write it down because once you're gone, that's gone. If I didn't write this, Seabird would just be a funny name 
on a little plaque in a graveyard in Glenville up in West Virginia, up in the hills. That would be it. And now he's memorialized. Yes, exactly. What's your favorite part of being a writer? What do you like the most? I like the most when people read what I've written. When I've got something I find satisfying and somebody reads it and it satisfies them. When I've got that connection, that makes me feel better. It gives me courage to go on and, and try again to see if I could do it again. So finally, after 12 years of writing these books, I'm tackling my own book and it may be out next spring. Tell me about that. Uh, it's tentatively called The Green Light, and it deals with a uh, young Green Beret in the 1960s, uh, dealing with being a Green Beret in the 1960s, and that was the hardest book. I've been writing that for 12 years. Hardest book, why? That's your life. You didn't yes. have to do a lot of research to oh, find out about Seabird. No, but you write it, and you look at it, and it's not honest. And then you write it, and you're honest, and you think, people won't read that. That's too messy. So you're, you're constantly bounced around between veracity and fiction. So I decided to finally work it out. After writing these other books, Burke, it gave me a little more courage to try myself. I found that by creating a fictional character, I could write about youth. Right. So I took me and changed him. He's a semi-fictional character, and I find that when I use characters like that, it's easier to let them carry the story rather than have an autobiography. How, um, how tough was it you mentally to put yourself back in the place of this young guy in his early 20s oh, it went was through hard. a lot of hard stuff. It was very difficult at first. It was very difficult. I, like I said, started writing and stopped and wrote other things and then started and stopped a number of times over the years. What gave me courage to really continue was once I got a good start going and I would quit for the day, I started feeling better elevated that's the word I use with my wife I feel elevated liberated now I give speeches I give talks to groups on handling PTSD and one of my biggest advices write write it down I don't care what you write write in a notepad throw it away after you, but write it down if you see the words of things that happen on paper for me I found it liberating if you can just write it down, just make a song. Barry Sadler did that with the song of the Green Braves way right. back in. The, you don't, but it didn't have to be famous. Just a melody, a poem, an essay, um, a conversation, anything. Just I found that for me, and for probably for many people, the writing process itself, putting those words down that you're hiding, is liberating. It's like getting a million dollars worth of psychotherapy writing a book. You can. You can save yourself a million dollars by writing a book. You, uh, you've written many books, not just the series The Legend of Seabird. Right. What else? What else is in your uh, in One your book books? I did that was just a pure labor of love was The Seventh Cruise. 
And that was a novel I wrote based on interviews I did with veterans of World War II who were there and their wives who were their girlfriends. And I managed to get that down, get these incredible stories down before any of them passed away. So each one of them saw their story in a book. And one of them was with me at a book launch in Wisconsin. He wouldn't even talk about it when I first broached the subject. And there he was in a wheelchair holding his book up, wearing an old aviator's cap because he was a bombardier navigator in a B-24 wow. that was shot down supporting the landings in Okinawa in 1945. He survived on a raft, was rescued at sea by a PT boat. His story was never shared. He would have gone to the grave in three years and never, his wife, after I interviewed him, patted me on the hand and said, thank you for interviewing him so much because I learned things today I never heard before. And Burke, they had been married 50 years. That's the kind of stuff happens that veterans will just channel inside and they take those to the grave. But he didn't. He and she and the other vets got it out. Now you're a veteran. Why is it that guys keep it inside, keep it bottled up, often to their own de detriment? Often, often. I think it's because it's hard. It's nasty. War isn't something that you want your daughters or your sons or your wives or mothers or fathers to really know. Not the real stuff. They don't want it. You don't want them to know that. That's why you join. So they don't have to. Right. You, it, they call it protecting, but in a way you're just trying to protect them from one of the ugliest realities exists. And you don't, many of the men did things that would be, if they did it in civilian society, would land them in prison. Lock them up. Lock them up. But they did them, and they were patted on the back for it, and then they were told, go on, get on with it, good job. No, forget about it. So many of them tried, tried, tried to forget about it. You know, I think it's difficult sometimes, Carl, for people to look at an elderly gentleman in a ball cap, maybe in a wheelchair, maybe on a cane or a walker, and to realize, you know, that guy was probably a pretty badass individual in his day. Oh, I got to tell you about one of them that I interviewed. He was a navigator bombardier of that plane, the, the man I told you yeah, about. Yeah. When I I'm, interviewed him, somebody kept tapping me on the show and said, talk to Walter. He has a story. We know that it's there. He isn't telling it. He wouldn't agree to talk there with these other people. So we had to set up a formal interview. Now you think of this. Here's a guy who basically was a survivor, one of the survivors and a crew of men, a number of whom died. And he survived at sea and was picked up and rescued. He was a badass. He was the bombardier. He took control of that aircraft on a bombing run. Doesn't matter what they're throwing up at you. You've got to steer it right at that. That's tough. The man I met was a little shriveled up old guy with tubes up his nose in a wheelchair he couldn't even walk. Now, people can go into those places and see these old vets or go to the Washington's Memorial and the World War II Memorial, and you'll see them in the wheelchairs. You think, oh, little old men. You wouldn't want to mess with some of those people when they were younger. Right, right. Total badasses. Yeah. If you could go back and do it again, would you uh, would you be a Green Beret? Absolutely. 
if I had to be in the service, that's the only branch I could have been in because I was a person that found it very difficult to take orders. And in the Green Berets, nobody saluted anybody. You didn't salute if you're in the situation. All a sniper needs to do is see you salute somebody, and that guy's dead. So there was no saluting. We often wore civilian clothes. You were respected for your skill. Mine was communication, cross-trained in demolitions. I could blow a bridge up. Couldn't build it, but I could blow it. Those sorts of things. And these men know they need you. They rely on you, and you know you need them. And so what happens is you get a close... I have a brother. I, I'm closer with some of those men that I served with for a short period of time than I could ever be with my brother. And that's why they make movies called Band of Brothers and all that stuff. And it's almost a joke, but to those who are there, if you've been in a tight unit, it's not a joke. They really are as close as any brother that ever your mother gave birth to, or closer. I wonder, you went on to be a, a high school teacher yep. many years. Small town of Wisconsin. Do you I, think those kids knew what oh, you had been through? No, no. Nobody knew anything except that I had been in Green Berets and I had to take down one teacher. In the I, what do you not, mean you had to take down the teacher? Not physically. But he kept telling kids in his class that if they didn't behave, they'd get me in there and I could kill them 50 different ways. Technically, that was true. But <laughs> how do you think? how do you think those kids thought about me and my class as they came into my room from his. I finally had to go over, stand him in a corner, and say, you've got to stop saying these things because it's ruining the education of these kids. I do not want them terrified. That's not what you're looking for in a classroom. Right. I don't care. Yeah, that sort of thing. But specifics, they knew nothing. All they knew was the general resume. Were you tough on kids? Or were you... Thought of as a, a tough guy? I don't think so. I, the first year I taught, I taught a seventh grade class okay. in northern Wisconsin. These were kids that ran trap lines after school. These were kids, one of whom hauled water up to his house. They didn't have indoor plumbing. Right. These were tough kids. I taught us beautiful little blonde-haired girl who brought a 38 pistol to school in her purse. I found it. And when I took that out of her purse, I thought to myself, you know, I spent some time in some pretty tough units. These kids have got it tough. The men I worked with were respectful. They were Educated. Many of them had college educations or part of college educations. I did. Most of them on my team did. They weren't dummies. They weren't Mr. T's spouting silliness on TV shows. These were smart, educated, dedicated men. What a difference to talk to kids in a backwoods environment, trying to teach them, and they couldn't care less what you're doing or who you are or where you came from. They had... They had needs that I, I, matter of fact, I told my wife, I said, I worked in the Green Berets. I've taught school here. This is harder. Wow. That wow. was. 
Carl Stewart, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. The brand new book is Kiyomichi, The Legend of Seabird, the third in a series uh, about his great grandfather. Historical fiction. Best of luck with the new book. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Burke, for having me. It's my pleasure. And thank you for listening. Wherever you are, whatever you do, go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.